0: Is somebody clicking something in the background or tapping or... I'm tap dancing.
1: Click any click, click, click. Booyah. Practicing my tap routine for the talent show.
0: This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgemo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgemo.com and check them out. This episode is sponsored by Gaslight Software. They're putting on a mastering backbone training in San Francisco at the Mission Bay Conference Center, December 3rd through 5th of this year. This three-day intensive course will forever change the way you develop the front end of your web applications. For too long, many web developers have approached the front end as drudgery. No more. We'll help you build the skills to write front end code you can love every bit as much as your server side code. Posting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 33 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Jameson Dance. Hey guys, I'm at
2: Jurgerson on Twitter and jamesondance.com on the regular internet.
0: Awesome. We also have Joe Eames. Coming live from a smoky,
1: dirty basement. (laughs) Joe, that's me.
0: A smoky, dirty basement, huh?
1: Yeah. My kids burned something today and I need to tidy up my office.
0: Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say that you went and worked for one of my former employers. But... <laughs> anyway, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. The thing that I've been working on lately is an introduction to CoffeeScript. If you're interested in learning CoffeeScript, go to Intro to CoffeeScript.Eventbrite.com and sign up for the online training that I'm going to be doing next month. You can get early bird tickets through the end of this month, I think. So, we also have a couple of guests. Our first guest is Ben. Combi is it? Combi, Combi,
3: Combi. Yes. Hey, yeah, I'm uh, Ben Combi at uh, Unwired Ben on Twitter, and I'm the lead architect for the Enyo JavaScript framework here in Austin, Texas.
0: All right, and then we also have Gray Norton.
4: Yeah, hi. I'm a uh, I'm Gray Norton at uh, Gray Norton on Twitter, and I, I manage the Enyo team from a sterile conference room here in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, no smoke or interesting basement projects going on here.
0: Awesome, and it looks like I missed Tim Caswell.
5: Hello, I'm here. We all miss Tim.
0: My my Skype says that Tim is it's still ringing Tim's Skype. Interesting. So, so he's only partially here, I guess. So this week we're going to be talking about is it Enyo JS? That's right. Do you want to introduce it a little bit? I really I've been kind of buried. I was out of town last week, and I've been catching up, and I haven't had a chance to look at it.
3: Sure. Why don't you uh, give a quick intro, Ben, and I'll hop in. Okay. Yeah, so Enyo is a JavaScript framework that my group here at HP has been working on for a while. It actually came out of the WebOS project, which I'll remember the Palm Pre phone and then the touchpad that came out last year. When we ra- launched the original pre-phone, we had a framework called Mojo that we had. So, I mean, the idea behind WebOS was that you'd build applications entirely in HTML and JavaScript, and they'd basically be running on top of a WebKit engine directly on the device. So, we had this framework called Mojo, which was very much organized around the phone, around a you know, small vertical screen, doing lots of lists, moving back and forth between different screens. That didn't scale very well to a tablet. And we had a team that had been working on this tool called Ares, which was a in-browser web development environment. And they kind of managed to somehow get this component-based layout system working with Mojo. But in the process of doing that, they ended up writing their own framework called Enyo. So we had the first version of Enyo came out with the touchpad last summer. And since the hardware was canceled last fall, uh, the team kind of figured out what do we do next – And so we released NEO2 in January as a cross-platform framework targeting all sorts of mobile devices, iOS and Android, but also targeting desktop uh, web application development.
0: So is it kind of a competitor to things like uh, Ember and Backbone?
3: Um, Not really a competitor to Backbone. I think maybe we compete a bit against Ember. I think the one of the ways to think about it is Ennio is very much around the idea of organizing an application into lots of components uh, reusable components so you can like take a bit of functionality out of one app, put it into another so I think we kind of fit more into the world of like a Sencha Touch um kind of a framework that does all of the rendering from JavaScript into your application DOM, whereas I think a lot of other systems are more around doing templates or annotating existing HTML files, you know, adding functionality
0: onto those. Okay, that makes sense. I'm working with a company on a project right now that is using XJS, which is what kind of underlies Sensha Touch. And so from, from the layout in JavaScript perspective for me so far, it's been a world of pain. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just wondering, is is there a different mindset that you have to have in order to really make the, the layout in JavaScript make sense over just building some HTML and manipulating the DOM? Um,
3: I think so. I mean, I, if you look at where we were coming from originally in designing this, um, we were starting with a visual designer. So, rather than a person building a bunch of HTML, they'd actually start in our Aries tool and drag buttons around, drag input fields, basically kind of set up a UI in the application directly similar like how you'd build an app in Visual Basic. And so the NEO framework is very much organized around that idea that you're letting the JavaScript handle the rendering of all the HTML rather than thinking of the terms of pages and then going back and, you know, you're kind of thinking at a different level than if you're working in HTML directly.
0: So you're thinking in terms of maybe components instead of uh, page elements like divs and what, what have you?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, you're going to be creating divs and using the DOM, but you tend to organize your application around the actual UI elements that the user works with rather than the HTML items.
4: But I will say that Enyo actually sort of creates a, a bridge from the world that you're familiar with if you're uh, accustomed to building UIs using HTML and DOM directly, and sort of the higher-level world of components. So the 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 original architects of the framework spent a lot of time sort of discussing philosophical matters related to framework architecture. And one of the key principles behind the NU architecture is the notion that uh, it's all turtles all the way down. And I think that's a quote from uh, or a reference to uh, philosophy. But the bottom but the bottom line is that you can actually work very close to the DOM in Enyo, if you want. So we have uh, a UI library called Onyx, which sits on top of the Enyo core, which has a bunch of high-level controls that don't have direct analogs in the DOM, such as, you know, sliders and progress bars and things. Uh, But you can use uh, sort of the base kinds or uh, classes to use more typical terminology in Enyo uh, directly without using the higher-level UI constructs. And, and those can map more or less directly to the DOM nodes that you, you know and love, and you can style them using
5: CSS. Right. So I worked on the Enyo team for about a year during the touchpad development. And at the time, there was no Aries for Enyo, so we had to write all our Enyo by hand. And it took me a little while to get used to, but once I, once I learned the framework, it was really nice because you just make your components, and then you plug them together, and for the built-in apps on the product, it was really nice because we could embed apps inside other apps. You could have this little panel that's like your Wi-Fi config. and it can be in the config app or it can be embedded in this other app and since it's all componentized, it was really nice.
0: And can you do and it sounds like you can do that with Ares on the web now as opposed to on the tablet.
3: So we we basically, we have um, the original Ares, which was built around Mojo and the phone-style devices. It's still online. It's at Aries.Palm.com, So you can kind of look back and see where we came from. Ares 2 is the version that we're doing for annual development, and that is still in the process of being worked on. Um, we're actually using the ACE editor that Cloud9, uh, the company Tim's working with now, has been doing as kind of the editing component of that. So that's in development. You can check out the source code on our GitHub, but we don't have a demo version of that online right now.
4: There, right. Are, some inst- there are some instructions, though, in the README in that repo, and it's actually not at all difficult to uh, uh, to clone the Aries repo and, uh, uh, and get it running locally on your machine.
0: So this kind of leads me to another question. Um, it seems like initially since Enyo was aimed at the tablet and writing apps for the tablet as opposed to writing apps for the web. Well, two questions, and I'll ask the first one, then we'll move to the second one. Um, Is there any chance that you'll be moving Enyo to some kind of desktop application development, or are you going to keep it strictly on the web?
3: So for desktop app development, I mean, the area we've been looking at a lot has been Windows 8, because Windows 8 comes with a JavaScript runtime and basically kind of its own like PhoneGap style container for doing JavaScript applications, the Windows eight environment has some restrictions versus just doing standard web. They've kind of taken a lot of the content security things where you can't put into your inner HTML any script tags or event handlers directly. And you know a few other things like that and just kind of gone full bore with trying to make sure that content can't mistakenly you know inject program code. So we're having to do some work around that we're also you know doing some work around just understanding any other restrictions Microsoft's done but I think you know we don't have a specific announcement about when we'll have a Windows 8 application version ready but it's you know something we're actively working on
4: Let me take a just a slightly different you know angle on that question though because I think the key thing to understand about our vision for Enyo is that we're looking really looking to help um, help developers build native quality cross-platform application experiences using HTML, JavaScript, and CSS that can run really in any type of environment where you have a modern web runtime. So we're explicitly targeting mobile devices, phones and tablets, as well as desktop machines, and really, frankly, are agnostic with respect to whether an NEO app at the end of the day is running inside a container like PhoneGap or a, a native shell of any kind or in the Windows 8 uh, run time. And certainly, you know, there are things we need to do to ensure that we work well in all those environments. But the bottom line is our objective is really to help people build great application experiences using pure web technologies that can run anywhere.
2: So I'm not very familiar with Enyo, but just from browsing the docs in the website, it looks like it's very much focused on mobile. But from hearing you talk, it sounds like the goal is to r- write once, run anywhere. Um,
0: Where have we heard that before?
2: That's what I was thinking too, (laughs) right? Uh, But assuming you've written an an Enyo app, I mean, what what kind of changes do you need to make to make it work well on, on a small form factor and on just a desktop web browser too?
4: Well, there are, a, there are a number of things that you can do to write an NU app in such a way that it will work well across different form factors. And, you know, certainly we don't claim to have a, a monopoly on good thinking in that, in that area. So obviously, you know, if you've been following the, the, the trends around responsive web design uh, and all the techniques that have evolved there, you know, virtually all of those techniques can be employed within an NU app, and we encourage people to employ them Uh, where they make sense because, after all, Enyo is, at the end of the day, just JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. To go along with that, there are a number of things within Enyo itself uh, that make it easier to write UIs that adapt to different form factors. And and probably uh, the most visible, tangible one that I could mention would be uh, the panels metaphor that we, we came up with when we were first moving from just smartphones on WebOS to smartphones and tablets. And the idea is essentially that you have an application UI which is laid out in logical panels that live in sort of typically in sort of a horizontal space, but that your viewport at any time is viewing maybe on a phone, just one of those panels at a time, uh, whereas on a, on a tablet in landscape, maybe you get you know two panels on a tablet on, I'm sorry, a tablet in portrait, maybe two panels, a tablet on landscape or a desktop, you may be able to view multiple panels uh, at once. But... But from a user point of view, regardless of the size of your viewport, you get this sort of physical feeling of the space of these panels. And you understand as they slide in from the right, you can slide them back out to the left and move back and forth. And so that's a metaphor that we employed uh, very consistently across the WebOS apps and uh, and one which we find works well for for a a lot of different uh, types of apps, particularly those that have any kind of hierarchical navigational structure. And so that's a construct which is built into NEO as a a first-class element.
3: I'd also add that uh, another thing that we do is we have kind of a layout system. And so if you've done work in WebKit where you've used uh, the Flexbox CSS, you know that that's kind of a very powerful way of doing app-style layouts. Well, we built a simple version of that, which we call Fittable, for doing a layout across... Components where you have like one a few items that are fixed size, and then you want one other item to grow to the size of the container, whether that's the entire browser screen or just a part of the page that you're in.
4: Yeah, and the reason why we did that was simply because we uh, we wanted to ensure compatibility of any apps across the widest set of platforms possible. And of course, if you're going back as we are as far as uh, IE8, um, you know you can't be using uh, flexbox there.
0: So that, that's another question that I had was um, what's the browser compatibility as far as, uh, you know, do you, you're only going back to IE8. Are you supporting all the versions of Firefox? Um, you know, what other browsers have you are, are you targeting?
3: So, yeah, IE8 is as far back as we go for an Explorer. That's the last version that's available for XP systems. So that's kind of why we wanted to pick that as a baseline. For Firefox and Chrome... We generally mainly just support the most recent one. Um, we're not supporting Firefox 3.6. And if you're on Firefox 4 or later, you're in the upgrade system. So you're getting, you know, moving to newer versions pretty quickly. The same applies to Chrome. For Safari, I guess we're basically supporting the most recent Safari and then one version back because Apple is not upgrading Safari for some of the older um, OS releases. And then. We, kind of, we, have like a, we have a page on our site which lists the various compatibility things. Where we test occasionally on Opera, but we're not spending a lot of time with that. Um, on mobile devices, we're kind of going back to Android 2.3. Um, iOS 5 and 6 are supported uh, four best effort there. And then we're, we're, we've been testing on Windows Phone. Windows Phone 7, the browser, has some issues that we're not really happy with, but we're hoping that Windows Phone 8 is going to turn out a lot better.
0: And uh, when, you, when you say you're testing it, is that automated testing or are you, do you just kind of fire up an app and fiddle with it and see what doesn't work?
3: So fortunately, the nice thing about having the resources at HP is that we have a fairly large QA team. So we do have automated tests for a lot of the core stuff. But When you're dealing with UI differences and mobile devices, we basically have a team of dedicated testers that you know, go continuously through and check on the different platforms and file bugs against us.
0: Right. So so it is a supported project within HP? Absolutely. I'm I'm a little curious about how that works. I mean, you hear about some of these, uh, at least in the world that I live in, most of the folks that work on open source are, are generally employed by smaller companies. I do know people who are employed by larger companies like AT&T or something to work on open source stuff. Do they have some other way that they see that they're going to capitalize on this, either by... Um, putting out a commercial license or is it going to be used on internal projects or, or ha- w- what's HP's benefit in this?
4: Yeah, so uh, we're in the fortunate position on the Enyo side of really being a key enabler for a number of uh, revenue generating uh, business opportunities, both within our business unit, which is essentially the, you know, the, the former Palm, uh, as well as elsewhere in HP. So, you know, of course, in order to run the Palm business, you know, we were shipping phones and tablets, and so in the process of doing that, we built you know, a full-stack OS, WebOS, which we talked about. Uh, we built, of course, the annual application framework. We built a lot of cloud services that were uh, backing the OS and the applications that ran on the OS. Uh, and we can't go into a lot of details on uh, future revenue models because we're sort of in the process of relaunching the... Uh, the group now under its own identity and, and, and have some partnerships we can't talk about yet. But the bottom, bottom line is that our full stack OS and our cloud services both have significant revenue uh, potential and Enyo really is a necessary piece for, for making those things happen. And then we also are working pretty closely with HP's massive enterprise services uh, business. And you know those folks are getting asked more and more by their Enterprise customers to help deliver app solutions that run not only across different mobile devices but uh, potentially across desktop and mobile as well. And so Enyo is generating a lot of demand from within HP Enterprise Services as well. So we don't, we don't. Uh, it's not part of Enyo's charter uh, to directly uh, contribute revenue. And so our, you know, really one of the key principles that we uh, are operating under is that Enyo is and will remain completely free and open source.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So can
2: I ask a question that no might... <laughs> I, I don't mean it to be offensive at all. I guess that's a bad way to prefix the question. I, I mean, like, <laughs> framework saturation, right? There are so many frameworks out there that have um, so many people, like, talking about how awesome they are that I feel like there's not room in my heart for another framework. Why should I? should I... Because there's a cost, right, to investigate new frameworks and new things that you're giving up the chance to build your skills in something else. So, what? I guess two questions here. What kind of of projects would would Enyo work the best for? And and like what makes it different than than all the other frameworks that that are out there? I guess.
3: Okay. Well, I think the projects one is um, a bit easier just to kind of initially answer. Um, Enyo is kind of a standalone system for building complex applications. So a good example is the email application we had on the touchpad. So that's dealing with a really complex data source, an email store. It's showing information several different ways. So it's kind of having to render both you know, a view of a email folder, or this hierarchy of folders, then individual messages, and it wanted to have a consistent user interface for doing that. So, you know, if you try to do all that directly in HTML, you end up with something which, you know, might be functional, but you don't necessarily have all the nice UI bits that you'd have on a desktop application. So, Email was one of the most important apps on the touchpad, and Enyo kind of came around as like, how do we build all these components necessary to build something as complex as an email app or as complex as a spreadsheet application? Uh, the Docs to Go was built around Enyo. Um, sorry, not Docs Go. That was QuickOffice. Docs Go was on the older webOS. Um, I mean, I think it's when you're looking at the, kind of these classical desktop-style apps. I mean, I think you could do a really nice version of something like... Um, oh, what is a big Twitter client, tweet deck, you know, with its multiple rows of information coming all at you at once and kind of a constant rendering of different kind of data sources. I think, you know, if you're building something that feels like a website and, you probably isn't the right framework, if you're building something that feels like a desktop application, then I think it's a great way of organizing an application.
2: Sure, that makes sense.
0: So, So can I jump on that for a minute? Because you're you're, you're talking about like application look and feel or application style web apps, you know that look like desktop apps. Um, I, I I've never quite understood why you would choose that over maybe a native app. Are, are there reasons why you would pick one over the other?
3: I think the big reasons to go for a web based application that looks like a desktop app. I mean, one of them is you automatically have this kind of cloud sync built in. I mean, I'm thinking uh, like the Trello application, you know, a to-do task manager. I can access that on whatever mobile device I happen to have with me, whether it's a tablet or a laptop or someone else's laptop, and I have something I can immediately jump in and deal with. Whereas if it was an installable desktop app, I'd have to, like, figure out, okay, do I have a version for this operating system that it's running? I mean, it might be on Tim's system where he's running his own custom Linux, and obviously there's no EXE I can install. So I think that's one big advantage, I think the other one is just, you know, we're entering a system where if you have an application based on a website, it's a lot easier to maintain that, update it. So, you know, you have a point of sale system that people are running on 15 different computers. Having it on the website means you update in one place versus having to build some sort of installer and update mechanism where you push changes out to all the different computers.
4: I think another another point is just that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were doing the the lion's share of our computing on you know desktop and and laptop PCs but obviously over the last five six ten years you know we're doing a massive amount of computing now on our phones and our tablets and there's a whole wave of additional types of devices that are sort of undergoing that transformation now things like uh, TVs and cars and I guess in our in our vision, it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense over the long haul for either people who are developing apps or for people who are consuming apps if if you have a lot of sort of walled garden ecosystems springing up around each of these different device platforms and as a developer you have to be writing native apps for you know five different platforms. And as a consumer, you have to, you know, buy the same app on multiple different platforms or at least, you know, there's some cognitive load that comes around thinking about, well, if I want to get this particular thing done on my TV versus on my phone or my tablet, I might be using a different application. You know, so I, to us taking the long view, and we don't really claim that this is a transformation which, you know, we can make ourselves or that it's going to be easier happen or, or overnight, but we really have a vision of uh the web as a universal platform for apps and one in which you don't have to have compromises around user experience. So I think there's a great user experience that people associate with native apps for mobile and desktop platforms. And it's challenging to approach that on the web now. Uh, but we think that you know it's possible to come very very close a lot of the time with a true cross-platform app. And we think that especially if we and and people who share a vision like that keep pressing, you know, we think that's the, the logical destination for all this, that the web really becomes the dominant app platform.
5: So I have a question about this. You, I mean, the goal is to make it an uncompromised experience, but I've done web on mobile and web on web-based apps and browsers for years and years. I've done this since the 90s. And the biggest problem I've had is performance. Do you think mobile will eventually get fast enough that it will perform fine
3: I think we're seeing a trend in that direction I mean you look at um, the iPad 3 and you're dealing with something that is you know a couple of orders of magnitude faster than the original iPhone and that was just a few years ago I think we're also getting to the point where mobile devices are really going to have the same computing power as desktops I mean it's it's just been amazing how much more powerful I think the mobile devices have become, you know, as we reduce the chip sizes, as we, you know, come with better power sources. And also as we figure out paradigms where we shift a lot of the computation work off the device that you happen to have in your pocket and push it onto your own personal cloud or servers that you work with out there. I mean Dealing with HTML, dealing with JavaScript, you are kind of putting an extra layer on top versus what you would get if you were coding directly, you know, in whatever the native language of the device is. Um, But I think as the web world learns more and more techniques, I mean, we've done a lot of optimization work in Enyo around things like how do you render lots of items into the DOM and have kind of a nice continuous scrolling experience. So we end up using kind of a combination of a flyweight pattern where we... Don't necessarily associate any NO live objects with everything that we render. Plus, a paging system where if you're scrolling through a large list, we automatically have like a page of what's visible, a page of what's not visible. But you don't have that DOM filled with you know 50,000 items that you're not going to be seeing right now. So we kind of put them into the DOM just in time for you to view them, and then take them out so they don't clutter memory. I mean, there's there's techniques like that that can be done to make mobile or just make the web experience feel better. It's you know it's tough, but I really do feel like the computing power has been improving tremendously.
1: So I'd like to kick in here with some uh, of my own personal experiences. When we built the uh, Plural site's new HTML5 player, one of the things that we wanted to do was have the same code base running not only on the desktop but on devices and on phones. And we pushed and we pushed and we pushed, and it just seemed like what we were trying to do was. Create a car that could also haul stuff. And what we ended up with is an El Camino, and nobody wants an El Camino. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, we ended up actually really writing a really great HTML5 player for the desktop, and I think it works actually pretty good on tablets. But on phones, it just doesn't cut it. And we were making all kinds of considerations that for to work, make it work well on the desktop versus well, on the, just the user experience is so. Different based on screen size and input, you know keyboards and mice versus your fingers. That's a hugely different. and we had a we had a really co- qualified UX designer uh, working on the project with us, talking about you know how the different usability y- users were to experience the application from the different types of platforms and how to make that work. And responsive design only goes so far. This is not a world where, responsive design fixes the real issues of what's it like I mean, a good native app on a phone or on a tablet is significantly better than a good website unless you're talking about a very informational website but an app like a video player it just doesn't cut it so do you feel like that we will really as an industry solve that problem be able to do the right once run not now we're not talking about os's anymore that when right once run anywhere came out we were just talking about you know mac windows your unix uh, and windows and now we're talking about different devices and different input types do you feel like it just seems like the problem's gotten, gotten harder and we've been trying to solve this problem now for 20 years what's well, i mean harder. if you
3: If you look at, like, what
1: Microsoft's doing, they've
3: kind of decided that touch is the primary input method going forward, and, like, Windows 8 seems to be deprecating a lot of the mouse and keyboard in favor of touch interaction, even on kind of their desktop apps. I mean... Yeah, I think that's stupid. Well, I, I don't know. It's... I I think if you look at where people are doing the majority of their computing, touch devices are starting to really overtake the desktop, um, except for people that are kind of needing a desktop or laptop-style device because they're creating or editing a lot of content or programs, those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of applications that tend to be touch or very touch-responsive first, and then kind of have affordances for more desktop mouse-type use. So I mean, that's an
1: interesting answer because basically what you're saying is or, or what I'm reading what I'm reading between the lines, what you're saying is touch is going to be the primary interaction and so likely we'll make concessions and for people that want uh, mouse and keyboard input that will be a less that will be the second tier citizen.
3: I think for a lot of cases that's going to be the case. I mean I've seen initiatives where people are trying to run Android applications on AMD processors as part of Windows now. And even though you can hook a mouse and a keyboard up to an Android device, touch is primary there. And yeah, I just, I really feel like touch is kind of the future for interaction for the majority of users.
4: Well, and I I would also say, though, that even if true sort of touching the screen type of interaction doesn't take over the, the desktop. World, which I you know suspect it may not. I think the experience of using, for example, the uh, trackpad on a on a newer Mac laptop, you know, uh, in many ways physically is has a lot more in common with uh, with using a touch screen device than with uh, dragging a mouse around a desktop. And I think we are seeing a convergence of sort of UI patterns where you know really the latest versions of OS 10 and of course Windows 8 is a is a really obvious example are starting to adopt patterns that became popular on touch only mobile devices. So you know, I, I think the the distance between a desktop user experience and a phone and tablet user experience is closing. Um, so you know, to, to get back to your question, you know, do do you think we're going to solve these admittedly very difficult problems? You know, around uh, write once and run anywhere. You know I can't say absolutely that we will, but I, I feel like uh, definitely not if we don't keep trying really hard. And, and that's not to say that every single app developer out there should be investing a lot of their effort in, in trying to, to do this, because you know you've got business goals and deadlines to meet, and in many cases, you know it may not make sense to, to venture off into these uncharted territories, but I guess we see ourselves as really focused on pushing that ball forward because we think the destination is one that's well worth reaching and if one doesn't keep pushing on it, you know, we won't get there.
5: So I, I, I collect gadgets, as many of you know, and one of my most recent gadgets is the mk 8022 which is basically an Android device on a stick. You plug it into your TV via HDMI, you plug in a USB keyboard and mouse, and you get a computer. And it's been very interesting using Ice Cream Sandwich Interface with a keyboard and mouse. And at the same time I've been working on Cloud9 IDE experimental interfaces and I want a tree view that's mobile friendly. So as long as you only use clicks, only have big targets, don't rely on double click or right click, you can have an interface that works on desktop or on mobile whether they're using a mouse on mobile or a touchscreen on mobile or it doesn't matter. There's there's an intersection of interfaces that work on both and while a fully optimized app you may have to customize the desktop and mobile versions you're still saving a lot of time if you're if it's the same code base with just customizations instead of like rewriting it in objective c and then rewriting it again in c++
1: personally i hate that idea just because uh, having been, being a programmer i'm often a power user in applications and you know, taking the lowest common denominator of input devices or of input methods is basically just removing all the features that are useful, that, you know, make it a power user a power user, let you, let you do that.
5: Well, I mean, you could you can have the other stuff on top of it. You can still have a right-click menu for devices that have right-click. But if you want your same app to work on multiple devices without rewriting everything, then you got to stick to something that works on everything.
2: right.
0: Yeah. Well, and if you can, I mean, the more you can simplify it, the easier the code is to write and maintain. So, I mean, there's definitely a trade off. And if it's buggy because they've reached too far to provide those features, then it's a different, you know, it's just as bad as if they don't have enough features.
1: Yeah, it just, to me, it reminds me of the nightmare of a manager saying, hey, great, using this technology, now we can build the best possible app on six different things, and I only have to
0: pay a quarter as much. <laughs> yeah, we've well, all seen that work, right? I mean, yeah. I think it goes
3: back to the question, I mean, what problem are you trying to solve when you build an application as well? I mean, there are certain applications where maybe it doesn't make sense to show the same thing on a desktop or a tablet or a phone. And, you know, it's it just depends entirely i mean is it, do you want it to be accessible on all the devices but work well on one or do you need like totally different ideas about how you deal with your information depending on what kind of screen you're viewing it on
1: i think that's very true ben you know you kind of bring up a good point and that is it's it just it really varies by the app some apps just work great a lot of things are going to work great on multiple devices like uh here in salt lake there's a theater company called megaplex theaters and they have an html5 website that you hit on your phone, and it works fantastic. just a great, great website. and it works great on the phone, it works great on the iPad, and then I don't know if their desktop, if it, they're using responsive design and cutting out things, or if their desktop app, uh, site is really different. but you know something like that's perfect. Obviously, when it comes down to like a, a coding editor or something like that, I would cry the day that that's implemented the same across multiple platforms.
0: <laughs> right. So we're so, we're running uh, out of time a little bit. I mean, we still have another five or maybe ten minutes that we can talk, but I want to make sure that we're we're covering all of the different aspects of uh, of Enyo. Um, one question that I have because we've talked a lot about like sort of the the widget or app reusable chunk of code or reusable interfaces. I'm I'm wondering, do you provide any mechanism for themes, or do you just expect people to CS- use CSS?
3: So that's actually a good question. So the Enyo core really doesn't have any UI. Then we have our Onyx widget set on top of that, which does provide a very definite user interface that you know, our HI designers inside of the Palm group figured out. Um, the 2.1 release, which is what we're finishing up this week and next week, now has support for less style theming. So we kind of went through and took all the CSS or designers came up with and Parameterized it, and provide instructions on how to modify the variable set to do a custom version. But the framework is set up so that you can define your own widget sets. I mean, we've had developers in our community go and take the look and feel of the original webOS phones and turn that into a widget set. So, it's, you know, we kind of provide like a base UI class for common form elements. So, if you create a new widget set, you want to follow that. But You know, we kind of designed it from the start that you could have different look and feels plugged in and use those as your own components.
0: All right. The other question I have as far as the kind of the reusable, I I don't know what the right term is, like widget or mini app within the main app or whatever. So are you aimed more at sort of a modularly designed application? Or, you know, if, if I do have an app that takes up the whole screen and provides different you know, maybe just lists all the people in my list of clients or, you know, whatever, (laughs) you know, do you have elements that are aimed more that way for like a large one, one screen, one widget app?
3: Actually, I mean, I think a good example, we have an application called Sampler that shows all the different samples for the different widgets. And so each of those samples you can run in its own web page, but then you also have a view there where you have can navigate through the hierarchy to find your know, particular sample, and it shows up on the side of the screen in its own area. But then you can click buttons at the bottom, which then show you a source for it or launch it in a new window. So, I mean, I think you can totally do this kind of like a collection of applets design with Enyo pretty nicely, but that's not the only way of designing your app.
0: All right. So one uh, other thing that I want to aim at here real quick is, and, and this was back way back at the beginning of the show, I said I had two questions and I asked you one, I didn't ask the other. Um, the, the question is basically, do you feel like, or, or maybe the better question is, how do you feel that coming from more of a or palm web OS uh, based background how, how has that colored the design of what is now uh, web technology
4: well I think uh, uh, you know the the focus on trying to build native quality app experiences using web technologies on even a very uh, even on a device that has relatively limited computing power is you know that's probably you know the the way in which our Palm legacy has informed our direction the most because when we launched WebOS three years ago, we made the decision to to make our native app runtime you know the web stack. And yet, you know when consumers and you know reviewers were looking at our app experience, they were of course comparing those apps to the apps on iOS and Android and and other OSs where they were using a native development stack. And so the we were in a situation where we really needed to squeeze every last drop of performance and polish out of uh, the web stack. And so, you know, I guess my answer is that, you know, we were really focused on creating an app-like experience and coming as close to that native experience as we could. Um, And so a lot of the decisions we made about, uh, you know, the nature of the framework and the, the set of problems that we've chosen to focus most of our time on, you know, were driven by coming from that place.
0: All right, cool. Any other questions that you guys have before we roll over to Pix?
1: Yeah, I've got a question. The same question I ask every week. What's the best way for people to go about learning NOJS? What's what's the best learning path and kind of what's the uh, learning curve like, you know, time-wise for getting into Enyo? Know?
3: So we have a basic tutorial up on our website, which is com, which will take you through... I think right now we have it building a Twitter search application, but we're going to have to rewrite that at some point in the future because of Twitter's API and terms of service changes.
0: Um, I just want to point out, former uh, panelist on this show, uh, Yehuda Katz, he tweeted that uh, Twitter user APIs are becoming like taxi medallions.
3: <laughs> well, we actually, we didn't even we were using the search API for this so that one never required oh, any no. authentication so maybe it'll stay alive but we're definitely violating the terms of service and displaying tweets um, so we have that tutorial we also have a very active user forms that's linked off our site and I'm on there, several of our other core developers are on there we're you know answering 20 odd questions a day from people that are exploring and trying things out and then we have a huge number of former webOS developers and people that have just stuck around with Enyo that are building apps that are you know, active there, helping people as well. So I think that's the best way right now.
4: Yeah, so I'll mention in addition to the tutorial, we have a, uh, a growing set of docs in our developer guide, which you can find. Just go to EnyoJS.com and click Docs, and there's some good introductory material there to go along with the tutorial. And then Ben mentioned the sampler earlier. Uh, definitely poking your way through the sampler and there's a you have the ability to view the source of any of the samples within this, uh, the sampler at any time. So that's another great way to uh, get your annual legs beneath you.
3: And I think once we have Ares 2 out the door, that'll be a really good way, because then you can visually build up something and see what the source looks like for it, and then add functionality.
0: Yay for generated code. <laughs> um, so what what kind of a... How long would you expect somebody, if they jumped in and, and needed to pick up JS? how long do you think it would be before they were proficient enough to just, you know, build an app without too much uh, need for hand-holding or reference.
3: Well, we had a hackathon in Sunnyvale a couple months ago, and we came in with people that had no experience with Enyo, or maybe just had looked at the website, and had built up some sort of application by the end of the day. So, I mean, I think you can get a feel for some basic stuff pretty quickly. I think the biggest thing we've seen has been developers that have come into Enya without a lot of JavaScript or CSS experience. And so, you know, we've not necessarily been having to teach them the framework, but teach them more about, like, oh, how does an asynchronous method work? Or, you know, why, why does my stuff not lay out the way I want it to? Things like that.
2: Man, I still ask those questions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, One last question a few of us on the podcast tend to do things with, uh, you know, some of the best practices like testing and and what have you. Um, does JS play nicely with the testing frameworks that are out there for JavaScript?
3: So, there's um, back when we were working on the touchpad, uh, we were working with Pivotal, and they did a lot of work with, uh, you know, they built Jasmine. So, there's been a lot of work with Jasmine. Uh, there's a basic test framework that actually comes with Enyo. And it's um, you know we use it for testing our core things, uh, and we're starting to spend some more time with some of the tools which let you do like testing in a browser core, you know, running on a server. Uh, but we haven't, we don't have a lot of great experience to pass on about that yet. It's still kind of in in process.
0: Right, and I would imagine also that uh, just just by the nature of Enyo some of the testing you can do automated, you know, the right information is showing up, you know, in the right, uh, elements or the right components on the page. But then, uh, also since you're doing so much with the layout and look and feel that you're obviously going to need some kind of visual inspection as well.
3: Definitely. But I mean, you know, we use Test for a lot of like the core component model that we have, uh, a lot of the Ajax codes, you know, underneath our internal testing. So, you know, we're kind of, we're in the middle of building out a better test suite for our own use, kind of going from the core outward.
0: Right. That makes sense. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that we should cover when talking about NU.js?
3: I would just add that we have a really great community of contributors. I mean, we started off kind of very closed, just our own development team. But really, since we um, released the final version 2.0 back in June... We've been getting a huge number of pull requests from people, and you know, we're very open about taking contributions that are good from the community. We also have a gallery on our website where something that doesn't necessarily go into our core code but is still useful for other people, we have a way of highlighting that. And you can go to, let's see, nojs.com slash gallery and see about 60 different user contributions that we've accumulated so far.
0: If somebody wants to contribute, what what's the best way of doing that? Just checking out the code, looking at your... Tickets or or bug lists, and then picking one, or would you rather have them talk to you first?
3: I think uh, you know engaging with us first is a very good idea because you know we have some directions that we published about you know where we're looking at. Like you know we're, we're in the middle of doing a pretty significant you know integration with Backbone to provide some sort of MVC model for the future. So you know someone duplicating that MVC type work you know probably wouldn't have as much chance of getting it accepted, but if you just want to build your own UI widget, you know, and have that exposed to other people, just go at it and you know talk to us on the forums. And we actually, the way to add something to the gallery is submitting a pull request to us, updating the gallery metadata. So it's very easy.
0: Okay, cool. Did some, was somebody else trying to jump in when I asked my question?
4: Well, I was just going to say that you know the gallery is definitely definitely a great place to look, and and you know I think Ben was right to bring up community because while from a sort of from the point of view of the sets of problems we're trying to solve, we may be closer to the, the frameworks from Centia. We're actually huge uh, admirers of the community model around uh, around jQuery. And so everything right down to sort of the NU architecture, where we have this really relatively small, tight core, and then all of the functionality around layout and UI is built as optional libraries, um, is very much designed to encourage the community to help us, uh, you know, build useful stuff on top of Enyo. So um, we definitely want community involvement of all kinds and would and love it if, you know, a few years down the road, we can point to a, uh, a huge and, and, and booming community of people who feel as invested in Enyo as we do.
0: All right. Terrific. It looks like we're about out of time. So I'm going to move us along to the picks. Jameson, do you want to start us off with picks?
2: I can start us off for sure. So I just have two technical picks this week. One is a great article about MongoDB. It was on Hacker News the other day, I think. And I found that most of the articles on MongoDB, especially on Hacker News, are just people kind of whining about it. (laughs) Um, Like any other technology, it has strengths and weaknesses. And there's just this bandwagon that people love to jump on where they only talk about its weaknesses. But it does some things really well as well. And this article is called Things I Wish I Knew About MongoDB a Year Ago, which is just nice little performance tweaks and hacks and and some cool features that I didn't know. talks about the query profiler and the explain feature and some interesting things about how to use indexes correctly and stuff. So that's my first one. My second one is a GIST blog post about promises by Dominic Denicola or something. But he, he talks about some of the purposes that some of the roles that promises fulfill in helping you manage async code and how lots of promises implementations don't get them right and i'm not super familiar with promises so it was really helpful for me to understand a little bit more about how they work and how they can help you manage async code without um, dealing with callbacks as much or nested callbacks as much so them's my picks
0: awesome tim what are your picks
5: I'm gonna pick the MK802 Android stick because it's really fun to hack on, and you can get the original for under fifty dollars on Amazon.
2: And when you say stick. What does that mean? Like it looks stick? like
5: it looks like an oversized USB stick, except it has HDMI on the side. You just plug it into your TV.
2: Oh, okay, I thought you meant like a pole or something.
5: No, not exactly. But yeah, it comes with ice cream sandwich and you can also boot custom ROMs on there. You can boot for Mubuntu or whatever. Someone ought to put WebOS on there for fun. But I don't I don't know. It's a fun hackable device.
0: Cool. Android on a stick. Keep it cool so it doesn't melt. Yeah, it gets pretty hot. Alright. Were there any other picks? That's all I got. Okay. Uh, Joe, what are your picks?
1: My first pick, which I've already picked before and is a little self-serving, is a uh, Domo. And the reason I'm going to pick uh, Domo is because our boss just announced this week that he's giving everybody uh, a Christmas break. And so we all have from the 22nd through the 1st off over Christmas, which is like 11 contiguous days. Of course, four of those are weekend days. But I was pretty happy to hear about that. So my wife and I are going to go someplace cool. So I'm going to pick Domo.
0: Uh, is that a recruiting call?
1: That is a little bit of a recruiting call, but yeah. mostly just a neener-neener that I get a Christmas break, and you guys <laughs> probably don't.
0: I'll have to talk to my boss. He's kind of a jerk, but I might be able to work something out.
1: Your boss is a huge <laughs> jerk. I don't think he's going to be considerate of you at all. Uh, <clears throat> my second pick is... I'm just going to repick the what Jameson picked last week, XCOM. I bought it mostly because of what Jameson said. Yeah. And... I have completely ceased all extracurricular programming activities (laughs) because of it. And on the same vein, when I can't play XCOM because I'm not at my desktop or on my laptop, then I've been playing this iOS game on my iPad called Kingdom Rush, which is a tower defense game, but way better than any tower defense game I've ever played. Totally awesome. And then my last pick, which is back to programming, is the book The Clean Coder, which is completely awesome, and the second book on saying no made me realize the last 15 years of my life as a programmer has been completely me lying to everybody I talk to. Liar. Liar, liar. My pants are on fire.
0: Is is that where the smoke in your basement is coming from? (laughs) I think so. All right. All right, so I've got a couple of picks here. Um, The first one is TweetBot. They just released in the uh, Mac App Store, and uh, I think it was released today. Yeah, today. Released October 18th, 2012. Anyway, it's $20, but the interface is is smooth, clean, and nice, and it does lots of cool stuff. So, anyway, I really like it, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, it's in the Mac App Store, like I said. And then the other thing that I want to pick is I just bought a whole grundle of stuff from Amazon, and... Um, the reason I bought it was because I'm going to be doing a podcasting club for my son's elementary school. And so I just wanted to share some of the stuff that I bought. Now, I already have the Mackie 802 Zenix 802 um, mixer. And, and I bought a new mixer. So that's the old mixer that I used to use on these shows. Um, in addition, I bought... I don't know if I'd say they're inexpensive, but they are less expensive than like the, the top-end professional microphones. I got two of the Shure SM58 microphones. They're about a hundred dollars a piece. And then I got some windscreens for those. Um, I also picked up, I have an extra pair of headphones. Um, I've replaced them with the ones that I use now. The, I, I use I use some pretty nice ones. But uh, anyway, so I picked up some JVC uh, Super Aural, um headphones. So they're over the ear headphones. You just get better sound out of those, and then I picked up a, a Griffin iMic, which is just a USB uh, sound card, and that way I can I'll have two inputs and two outputs audio-wise for my laptop when I go to do the, the recording and stuff, and that way I can I can pipe stuff in and, and do some cool audio effects with the kids, um, maybe talk to them about how to, uh, you know, put a, a soundboard in and stuff, and, and just make it all work so that we can get some recordings in and get them podcasting. So, Those are my picks. I'll have links to all that crap in, from Amazon in the show notes. And then we still have the guests to do their picks. So, um, Ben, why don't you give us your picks?
3: So, I have two picks. Um, one of them is a Parrot AR drone. I was just out at JSConf EU in Berlin last week, and the people were hacking on these. And basically, I saw a guy let had a Wii controller hooked up to an Arduino, hooked up to a Mac running Node, which was then controlling the AR drone. And they basically were using that to try to get the drone to hit a big button when when Pressed was going to open source a project on GitHub. And after about five minutes of flying around, they finally hit the button, but then the script that that button ran wasn't tested and failed out. So, But the drone itself was very cool. Second pick, in addition to JavaScript Jabber, one of my favorite podcasts is called Video Games Hot Dog, and it's done by the guys who do the Kingdom of Loathing online game. But it's just basically an incredibly funny look at what people are playing video games, both new and retro. And you know, it's what I listen to when I don't have time to actually play any video games myself.
0: Awesome. All right, uh, Gray, what are your picks?
4: Yeah, so uh, I I uh, have to admit to have. Um, uh, that I just sort of uh, was racking my brain for picks while you guys were making yours, so they're going to come a little bit out of left field. But there's a couple of of useful um, Mac apps that I've just started using. So we have a really active uh, discussion area in a 37 Signals uh, campfire room that I've historically had a really hard time keeping on top of until recently. I tried this uh, Mac app called Flint, um, which for whatever reason for me it's made all the difference i'm actually able to stay on top of the campfire discussion without ruining the rest of my day so just super clean super clean interface that i can look at when i have the time uh, and and uh, so so that's been good i also recently moved uh, i've been trying to find a good GUI uh, git client that i like uh, and having messed around with a couple including most recently source tree from atlassian on the recommendation of uh Another team member, uh I, I recently tried Gitbox and and so far so good. I'm liking that super clean uh GUI interface for Git. But probably sort of the most uh, enthusiastic enthusiastic I can make is like coming from way outside the tech world, unless you consider just the fact that it sits on a piece of optical media to, to be a, a uh uh, a technical tie, but the bottom line is, um, I, I've really been enjoying an audiobook. Uh, it's it's actually Rob Lowe's autobiography, uh, Stories I Only Tell My Friends. Um, and I, you know, kind of random. My my wife listened to it and loved it, and I've never had you know been a particular Rob Lowe fan, but it turns out super interesting guy, super articulate, and to hear him read uh, you know some some super interesting stories of his life has kept me sitting in my car outside the office after I arrived the last couple of mornings. So highly recommend that.
0: Awesome. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes as well. So real quick, uh, we'll wrap this up. I don't think there are any announcements. Um, I just want to remind folks that you can go do my intro to CoffeeScript course. And uh, that's an intro to coffeescript.com. I have an announcement. Oh, you have an announcement. Go ahead.
2: Um, the Node Knockout is coming up. It's, it's similar to the Rails Rumble where you just hack for a weekend on a project with the team. And you just compete to see who can make the coolest thing. I don't really enjoy the competition part. It's more just to get together with a bunch of people and make something awesome. Um, I think there are still some open group spots. So if you go to nodenockout.com, uh, you can see more information about it. It's the weekend of the of November 10th to the 12th, I think. So it's coming up soon, and it could be a great way to learn more about Node and JavaScript if you want
0: to join a team and jump on Awesome. Sounds terrific. All right. Well, we'll wrap the show up. Uh, thanks for coming, Ben and Gray, and we will catch you all next week. Thanks.
4: Thanks. you. All right. See you guys around.